Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman. Do you remember me? I remember you. It's been quite a few months and I'm I'm sorry about that. Um, I just stopped doing the podcast really because of the pandemic, really because of the lockdown restrictions. I've had breaks before and then I got used to I got used to not doing a podcast and I didn't mind that. Um, but there's been little niggles. I've wanted to do it. I've had a couple of stories that have been sitting there, a couple of interviews that have been with me for months. And I think what I'm going to do now is just uh, put them up when I feel like it. Um, rather than doing one a week, I can't keep up with that anymore. And uh, we don't know where we're at with restrictions and people feeling comfortable about sitting in rooms. I'm pretty committed to the idea that I mostly want to do this face-to-face and in person. I don't really want to do phone calls and Zooms. I'll do them every now and then if it's the only way and it's worth it. Anyway, this is episode 274 and it is the first in about eight months. Um, It is the first one of 2022 and it is a conversation that was recorded, well, not quite a year ago, but I reckon I recorded this conversation in October of 2021. Uh, It's a returning guest, Megan Dunn. She's a Wellington writer, um, and I spoke to her, I think, in 2018 about her first book, Tinderbox. Um, This was a conversation where she returned to my house to talk about her then brand new book, uh, Things I Learned in Art School. Uh, It's a wonderful book. It's basically a memoir. It's also a collection of essays. I think it does the job of both. And we had a fun and fascinating chat. It's always brilliant talking to Megan. I don't know her super well, but after meeting her that first time a few years ago and obviously following her on social media, um, I would bump into her in the street. She lives in the, we live in the same neighborhood, so uh, we've got a lot of common interests and friends. So, you know, we've stopped and had a couple of brief chats in the street and uh, are aware of each other. So it was nice to catch up and nice to catch up on all of the work that she's doing and, and hear about the book. And I loved this book and I was thinking about this book recently and that's really what got me going, man, I have to publish that podcast, I have to put it out there, even though the publicity of that book is over. Um, but maybe you're hearing this for the first time and, and uh, hearing Megan Dunn for the first time, so maybe that's going to get you um, you know, a new author to check out. I'm going to include a link to the previous podcast chat with her because they are completely separate conversations uh, and I loved that chat as well. Um, yeah, I'll have some more updates hopefully in the coming weeks and months, but um, you can get this podcast in a couple of new places. You can get it on Amazon Music. You can get it via the Audible app. If you are a subscriber to Audible and you listen to their audiobooks and podcasts, you can search Sweetman Podcast and find it there. And it's available on my Substack uh, newsletter platform, which is uh, simonsweetman.substack.com. I love this conversation. Uh, I've missed putting these conversations out into the world. Um, and uh, it feels nice to be back. So I hope you like this. This is me talking once again with Megan Dunn. You've put all out there what you wanted out there anyway. You haven't kept much of yourself. Yeah, we on? Yeah, shit, yeah. Yeah, we're on. We've been on on the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) No, we're on. Are we on? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's an interesting one. People have said, you know, yeah, people have commented, you've shown everything. Yet, in a way, I haven't. I mean, for instance, a boyfriend the other day, sent an ex-boyfriend sent me a Facebook message wanting to know, you know, how he'd been portrayed in the book, if he'd been mocked or ignored Mm. or what. And I was like, well, I hope it won't come as a disappointment. 
but a relief to know that you're not in it. (laughs) (laughs) And he was someone who I went out with for six months. But mysteriously, I just didn't actually have anything to say about that when I put together this outline. Um, because I wrote an out, I wrote the the wonderful structure that I've heard people say without, with a straight face of the beginning, middle, mm. more middle, and end, mm. which is all just a big joke mm. about the fact that I've always found structure quite difficult, potentially because I went to art school and was told to put the beginning at the end, the middle, and the beginning, and you know, like yeah, yeah. mix it all up. Yeah. So this takes a broadly chronological approach. I lay out that beginning at the very outset with different tantalising titles to help make me want to write it. Mm. And those were clustered around things and experiences that I somehow had something to say about. A few of them shifted and changed, but many of them didn't. And indeed, it doesn't absolutely cover everything that ever happened to me no. across all these years. It would be bloody boring if it did. <laughs> well, that's, that's true. Um, but also, you're quite, I think, the thing you have saved of yourself is you're quite protective of your... Um, very current stage in life and your own little family. They are alluded to rather than explored in any huge way, right? Well, you've gone right to the... You've cut right to the chase <laughs> I want there. this to be a short podcast because we've talked before. <laughs> because that, that is important. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah, that is a big so difference. So that's the bit... When I said, you you know, you've, you haven't saved much of yourself, you really have, actually. Yeah. yeah. It's that great writer deception where you have offered up heaps. Yeah. But... People don't know how much you've saved of yourself. Yeah, well, uh, these are all right. re- recollections of things. Mm. Most of the book is me between the ages of about six or seven to 27, mm. with mm. A, one essay about my mother, which is obviously me much more recently. Mm. Mm. But most of it covers a stretch of time well past, mm. well jogged into the past. Mm. And indeed, when um, Lana Lapizzi, the writer, yep. interviewed me and we had a chat for Metro magazine, she'd she asked me the same question about what do you hold back or and I had this reaction which I think is a good one of Rich my partner walking past me in our flat one night to go to the bathroom and he looked at me and went am I in the book and I looked up and went nah and then he walked off (laughs) so yeah there's a lot like there is this whole moment of time which is really preserved and it's more in the now and that would be much more complex um, to portray. Yeah, it's funny though when you when you <laughs> mean, I was going to cut in before when you mentioned about the ex boyfriend contacting you, you know, isn't that the funny thing about writing about your own life that you risk the two the two sort of damages you risk are mentioning someone or not mentioning them. Yes. And, and w- which is worse? You, and you never know until, you know, I, I I had this with with my book of poems that came out last year. I sincerely didn't realise how much I'd talked about my father, who's still alive and who I'm close with. Yeah. Um, so not in a, you know, memorialising way or anything, but but I didn't, I sincerely did not realise how much he was in the book yeah. until I re- held a copy of it. And I kind of bristled and went, oh, you know. And then I went, oh, I'll be fine, he won't read it. And, um, yeah, he did read it, but he hasn't talked to me about it. <laughs> you know, it's my mum said, did he tell you that he read the book? And I said, no, and she goes, he did. And that's <laughs> it. And it was like, whereas she read the book and said, you know, I liked it. but she And she's in it too. But I kind of went, shit, actually, there's lots of stuff, not just about me in that book, it's about people I know. It is a very um, complex... Um 
it's a complex form, isn't it? And it's not one I ever really expected to be in. Uh, yet here I am. The key essays that talk at length about someone else, like Days and Nights mm. of an Artist Run Space, which chronicles my friendship with David and mm. the Artist Run Space we ran, the essays uh, about Yvonne, um, the essay about my dad, all of the people who were written about at length, and um, Nine Months in a Parlour called Belle de Jour. Mm. Holly, Holly read her essay. They all read their key essays. If right. they were mentioned at length in a way that um, mm. really took them on as subjects. Otherwise, there are other people, mainly whose names are changed, that are, that are fleeting, that yeah. skip into a sentence or two. But they're not really manifested in any way as a, as a portrait. Uh, and so those people have not been consulted. Mm, yeah. <laughs> for better or for worse but I know what you mean as, as, as it quickened towards publication I started to think oh yes some people will think this is a book it might be about them and then they'll be disappointed that they're not in it have you read the um, <laughs> the bad art friend essay that's been doing the rounds oh, this week the New I, York Times thing I, I skipped over yeah. that um, it's very good yeah it's an interesting dilemma but just sort of to me I mean it's many things it's a huge piece of writing and it's, mm. and it's doing the rounds so it takes a while to get through but I think the main thing I took from it was god writers are a pack of thin skinned egocentric fuckwits you know like really yeah. when it comes down to it because on both sides of that one you've got these two people involved in that well there's a few periphery characters as always but the two main writers mm. and one is basically saying you took an idea that happened to me and you turned it into your own fiction and you didn't credit me yeah but it's like we're always doing that picking up things from around and artists in general you pick up things from around the place and you morph them into your own you know into your own thing I think it's a really tricky issue, which mm. is why it's such an interesting piece. Mm. And it speaks to why we write, which is that it's hard to let go. Mm. And both of them, both of those writers are actually finding it hard to let go mm. as well. Mm. Mm. But <laughs> I the, think it is complex because she yeah. did lift from oh, other sure. writers' Facebook posts and some, some direct content. And there's an amazing yeah. piece in it. Um, it's a tricky one. There's an amazing piece towards the end of it where um, the writer who has done the lifting, she just sort of positions something in such a way as to, I, I, I don't want to use the term playing the race card because, you know, I don't oh, just say that much. Yeah. But you could, she just seemed a little more calculating than, than the journalist who writes the story at first makes you think. You know, I think it's a really great deceptive piece of... Um, journalism mm. that brings the story together too like because you're just following it and going par each new each second paragraph just reveals something yes. to, to keep hooking you into this really long story yes it yeah, yeah yes it does yeah so you weren't going to write this book you came around here a couple of years ago and i'm thinking like because we don't really know each other that well you came around here a couple of years ago and i yeah. had never met you mm. and we had a similar experience you're book tinderbox was about the book publishing trade but it was also about your time working in a bookstore mm. and that i had worked in too i know and we sort of found that out the in borders the, the borders yeah that's right and but we didn't really work at the we, and we must no. have just missed each other yeah in that but we had similar you know i think i said to you at the time your book was mildly triggering for me yeah, but in a good it. way i liked yeah. it but it really brought back memories and 
you were already well known, fairly well known for and well involved in your mermaid research at that point. And I, yes. I haven't gone back and listened to that podcast, but I did enjoy that conversation. And I feel like somewhere near the end of it, I said, well, you'll have to come back when you've written the mermaid book. And you said, I will. And here you are with a different book, mm. that, but that is directly um, spawned from yes. the mermaid book. Do you want to talk through, I mean, you've done this already, but and you do it a little bit of the book, but do you want to talk through what I'm hinting around here, what what actually happened? So how far did you get with the Mermaid book? Well, in deep, yeah. <laughs> up Ship Creek, without a paddle, perhaps, yeah. or the paddle was lost en route. Um, I published Tinderbox in late 2017, and mm. I probably spoke to you in 2018. Right, right at the start of it. Yeah, yeah. it was a little book that I yes. had. Tinderbox was a little book that I had spent a long time writing in different instalments before it was brought together into one crazy jazzy whole. Mm. And uh, by the time it was out, I was really ready to be writing something else, which, I mean, maybe that's just the norm for creatives. Mm. We've always got our little beady eyes fastened on the next thing. Um, and I had had an experience where I'd stumbled onto, onto the lives and imagery of professional mermaids online, and then I'd just become completely hooked by mermaids and tinderbox had taught me that <clears throat> i might be a non-fiction writer although mm. countless people called it a novel which i found hilarious <laughs> having tried to write a novel for years then to accept that i couldn't and was writing non-fiction and then i was told my non-fiction was a novel i mean what a process jesus <laughs> you can't make this shit up as they say so I was, uh, I was deep in interviewing mermaids, and that had had a long gestation in itself. Mm. I'd been trying to write a fictional work about mermaids and thought, oh, well, what do mermaids do? And that was always a point I was coming a cropper over. And so once I found this world of professional mermaids and had accepted that I might be a non-fiction non um, writer, I began to immerse myself in interviewing mermaids. I find interviewing very addictive. Mm. I was very addicted to interviewing all of the mermaids and I was trying to write bits of draft. I think I had one, I had got some CNZ funding to write the mermaid project and I was going at it you know, tooth and claw, or, um, you know, <sighs> I was going at it as best I could, like, you know, like Ariel trying to brush her hair with a wonky fork, <laughs> but I didn't have the means or resource to be transcribing all of yeah. those interviews at the same time, Simon, so mm -hmm. I was uh, trying to mulch through too much research too quickly, and, and yet writing, because I knew I had a subject that mm. continues to fascinate people. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> um, my Great Mermaid Project continues to be the, the point that everyone wants to um, talk about first and foremost with this book, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's in this book, too, but, isn't it? Like, yeah. so, people who didn't know that, yeah. people that didn't read Tinderbox and that didn't hear you be interviewed or read you interviewed around that, yeah. um, are, are, are fascinated by it, I think, but in this book. Yes, that's right. picked up on that from a couple of the interviews. You know, when you talk to Colin Peacock, for example, yes. he hadn't read Tinderbox and, no, and, and openly talked about that, but he seemed flabbergasted by the mermaid. 
Well, it is. A, it, mermaids are often used as gimmicks, yes. and I think that's part of it too. They're yeah. used as an advertising hook, a gimmick. All of this sort of stuff is bound up in it. I've worked with mermaid imagery a lot. I've written mm. poems about mermaids years ago. I've written. I've done all sorts mm. of stuff. And I was trying to bring it all together, but I was trying to bring it together at pace, convinced that it was somehow going to unlock me going up a level in my life um, that was going to make me more financially stable, among mm. other things. And then I got to a point where I was, uh, you know, all tangled up in my draft and I sent it to a couple of different um, people that were important my agent in London and um, my publisher here, Claire Murdoch. And there was a delay of a few months between both bits of feedback, but there were, but the feedback wasn't good. Um, and the feedback that was consistent from both of them was that it was when the story was more personal to me, that's what was working and that I was the subject was mm. a common thread in both bits of feedback, which also had some differences to them. Um, so another way of what they were really saying was, we like you, but not the mermaids. Well, I think they, I, I think everyone likes mermaids. I think Claire Murdoch is feeling demonised for not liking mermaids. It's not true. Claire likes mermaids as much as the next publisher. Yeah. Well, when, <laughs> but I say, I just, yeah, but when a I publisher doesn't them like into something. A form, I hadn't brought them into a form yeah. where it was working. Mm -hmm. um, and I had to accept that based on those two bits of feedback and the common ground I could see between them. I think the, 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 there's a lot of complexity in why that wasn't working then and in my um, reaction. But Claire and I had a bit of history together too, given that I'd done a little bit of art writing for her when she was at Te Papa Press mm. and she'd always been responsive to it. She'd also loved an essay I wrote many years ago called Submerging Artists, which <laughs> Funnily enough, um, was a catalyst for all of the work that's come since, I think. Mm. Submerging Artist was first published on the Pantograph Punch in maybe 2013 or in the early days of that website. Mm. And it was my first piece where I just got this phenomenal response from other people, other submerged artists. It did contain some references to being at art school and trying to make a piece about mermaids and having a pivotal tutorial about an early mermaid video I was trying to create among many other things and of course it has that idea of submergence which is a water metaphor or analogy mm -hmm. now Claire was aware of that work and had loved it and she said really you know there's a story about you here I've seen some of your personal essays have you ever written about your earlier childhood what have you done and together we started we just quickly, um, we quickly brewed up a, a new form that would expand on mm. and house these personal essays that have been coming out mm -hmm. in, a, in a scattered fashion over the years. Um, she sensed, I guess, wisely that it was the tip of some iceberg. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's really interesting seeing this uh, reading this story in the order that you put it and the you know some people will love i think the early childhood stuff the most oh yeah because they'll you know like you're a couple of years older than me and i know that only because you date yourself in the book is when you went to art school yeah and i'm that's my final year of high school yeah so i i read the date i mean i, I think i sort of knew this but yeah so I, I i think of that but i go 
you writing about the Smurfs, mm. and I just gave my Smurf collection away a couple of weeks ago to someone who's collecting toys. Yeah. And uh, happily, mm. you know, but because you've got to make sense of this stuff. And for me, it made sense to get rid of it. For mm. you, it made sense to write about it. I may still write about that, but I had to get it out of the house. Mm. I'm doing that with a lot of my records at the moment, mm. which is why they're down the hallway. Um, and and I so I thought about that. And then Alf, you mm. know, I, one of the records that I won't part with is I've got the 12 inch single of um, Stuck on Earth. Oh my god! <laughs> I feel like we should be listening to we'll, it. We'll, we'll, we'll play that at the we end. We should day. be I, lulling viewers. I, I nearly thought about <laughs> viewers. To, yeah, I nearly, I nearly thought about putting it on when you came uh, in the door. When you messaged and said I'm running a bit late, I was like, second guess. Should I do this? No. What you know would what? have really made it is if you'd slid out of your <laughs> yeah. kitchen singing oh, into you a cucumber. Well, I usually do when people come round, and 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 they've never really got it, you know. So I think that's stopped me from doing that. But but um, I DJ'd once and took it with with me and thought. Tonight's the night I'm going to play it. And it was the most excruciating four or five minutes of my life. Did just, people hate it? Yeah. Blank just, just, just total what is wow. going on this. And so I read the room entirely wrong that day. <laughs> um, as, as I, which is not the one and only time I've done that, of course, but it was the That's one and only time I I've played to. that. Yeah, yeah. Funny, eh? So, <laughs> so I'm reading this. So I'm reading these things and enjoying the writing and enjoying the story, but I'm bringing my own story to it. And yeah. I know I'm not alone in that, that uh, yes. a huge part of your, which is hugely satisfying for a writer, isn't it? To go, I may never know that, you know, not everyone's going to bore you with their own version like I am now, but you, <laughs> but you're going to get, you know, you know, you're going to hit that mark with people. You know on some level people are bringing their own story to my story as they're reading it. Well, I guess it's a big responsibility to write about Alf, and I felt mm. I shirked it in many ways, because at the same time as these key cultural touchstones are in this book, it's not like I'm writing proper histories of them, which you could and which would be fascinating. Yeah, you know, no, I know what you there mean. There is incredible yeah. detail that I discovered about Alf. I mean, there was a there was a a duplicate puppet on the set mm. called Ralph, <laughs> which you know was a kind of like the more demonic, sad mm, Alf that mm. might have been used on stunts. I mean, there was really it, it was really like a minefield finding out about Alf, mm. and then it's like oh. God, yeah, I mean... I, I, want, I often think about how I want to sit and watch, if not all of them, then, you know, a season of Elf again. Because but I, I just know it won't be that good to watch. It's, no. mu it's much better to read about no. or whatever. But, I, you know, I was reading your, your piece about Elf and I was thinking, I had my tonsils out when I was a kid, but quite late as a kid. And one of my... Um, when I woke up, with a really scratchy throat, my dad turned up with a little elf toy, which I kept for ever because of that, you know, like, and and because that's when elf was on and it was a hit yeah. and stuff. And and my other thing I thought about, you um, might be one of our first comedians. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know. Oh, totally. Like, we thought he, he was, was hilarious. Totally. He was a one-liner king. Like, he was an <laughs> ab absolute one-liner king. Now, you watch them now, and you just be like, these things are just dropping like bombs. But it <laughs> yeah, was... probably are. But it was the best, wasn't it? Now, the thing that is um, so relevant to me as a nerdy music train spotter with Elf is that my favourite drummer is a guy called Vinnie Coliuda who plays with Sting and Frank Zappa and all these people. He 
plays the drums on the theme tune to Elf because he's an LA session guy forever. Wow. And I, you know, I was thinking, you'll appreciate that, you know. That's not a detail you need to put in your book, but you'll appreciate that that's my, you know, footnote around Elf that's relevant to me. I totally get it. And I mean, the histories of who made these things, and this is something I say quite explicitly at the beginning in my first essay. Let me me turn to it now, Mm. Simon. Google the past and you can trace a path back to the patent and the names attached. But can you ever really meet your mate? You know, like I say that quite explicitly and I am looking at the origin stories, however briefly, Mm. of those, of things like Elf and the Smurfs and other um, artworks, etc. across the book and this, um, you know, some call it glib fashion, but it's not, it, it isn't really glib to me. I'm really interested in how these things took shape and became phenomenons. And actually, they often are hugely collaborative mm. in the ways that they mm-hmm. unfold. Like even looking at the history of the strawberry shortcake doll mm. and how she comes from a greeting card that then gets franchised and how they turn this into you know, into a marketing um, phenomenon is is really interesting. And I think all of them... Yeah, that's almost a reverse merchandising process or something, yeah. isn't it? The, the, the merch on some level existed first. Yes. Then the backstory was created to then enable more merch. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, I, I think a lot of these things have really fascinating evolutions. And I did become quite taken with who had created Elf, mm. which is Paul Fusco, whoever the heck he is. The premise was essentially the house guest who wouldn't leave. He's a lonely person who can't go back home. You had to have some sort of feeling for him. I think it's really difficult, and I can't say I always achieve it, mm. to try and balance the facts with a, with a story that um, hooks you. I mean, in the in the path of a more historical essay, uh, the the chronicles and unpacks. God, I hate that art word. But you know, all of the details is not what I've done here. But that is something I'm very conscious would be incredibly interesting, and that I would. Really read <laughs> about mm. all of these things as well mm. like um the spin-off published uh, a little essay in the book which is called other artworks i have made with daryl hannah which they wisely retitled to being about um gene m all's clan of the yeah, cave yeah, bear series yeah. and i noticed that people commenting on the facebook page about it yeah are all just people having their own memories of the book mm-hmm. and that's you know yeah that's delightful yeah again i when i read that i I was like, I, I, I haven't seen the Clan of the Cave Bear film. I haven't read. I know, I know her name because I've worked in bookstores, yeah. and so you, you see hundreds in some cases of books by her. But my connection was that because I'm a, a, a soundtrack fanatic, I owned the soundtrack to the Clan of the Cave Bear on vinyl, and I sold it. And I now regret that because at that time I was going through this stupid idea that. I couldn't have a soundtrack to a movie if I hadn't seen the film, but I had no interest in watching the mm. film. But weirdly, I really liked the music to the Clan of the Cave Bear. I think it cost me 50 cents. I'm sure I'll find that record again one day without needing to look well, too Well, now you're making me interested exactly, in, in and the soundtrack. Exactly, and that's it. And that's like, you'll probably just go, whoa. But they often have really talented people totally. working across all of these That's things. It. Yeah, yeah, it was a big-name composer. I can't remember now. I think it was Alan Silvestri or someone like that. It was a big-name composer that put the 
work together and it was a really lush beautiful score with you know the great image of Daryl Hannah oh, <laughs> on the yeah. cover and it's so classic. you know you'd want it for that if you're a fan I of the film it. anyway that's yeah. right like but I don't know what I you know how it fell into my possession but I had it for a time I listened to it it's gone I may get it again I think we all have yeah you're right we all have our own associations with certain pop cultural moments of, mm. of our time and sometimes before our time sometimes of our parents some of us are yeah. deep fans we go back or spread off in all these different directions um yeah these are just some of mine and i guess because claire's my publisher she, we do share a generational reference yes. field and she was aware that she didn't think a lot of this has really been covered in in aotearoa in writing mm. you know no this uh, correctly time, that's true yeah, yeah this time frame from the uh, from the 90s uh, Mm. You know, the very early 90s, yeah, in, in terms of that stuff, and then through into your art school stuff. It, it's it, it basic, that's the thing, isn't it? That's the real bridge of the book is actually the 90s. You've got some memories from the 80s to start with, and then you've got some stuff that's happened more recently, but it's a 90s book. I noticed Sa Sally Blundell had, had been asked to review the book the other day, and her review popped up and said the beginning was like a John Irving novel, <laughs> and then it, you know, kind of transforms into this Chris Krauss kind of um, mm. period in the, in the art school years. Uh, just picking up on your comment mm. at the beginning that a lot of people will relate to the childhood, or that yes. might be the favourite part um, for, for, some, for some readers. Um, yeah, I guess once we get into, you know, me as a young woman in a linear edit suite late at night trying to recut Splash into an art video, mm. I, I'm aware that not everyone needs to read that story. <laughs> and not everyone's going to attach to that in the same way I found a different audience again with art in the waiting room mm. and me having to think about art or you or using art as a way to think through watching my mum's illness and death. Mm. Um, that's brought me different readers again. But at the heart of the book is still this woman whose experiences, my experiences, are, are founded in... in in a, in a kind of inheritance of a, of an idea of the avant-garde mm. and avant-garde art, mm, mm. which I mean now feels very antiquated and probably <laughs> deeply problematic, but I'm not in art and writing because I'm afraid of what's deeply problematic. Mm, mm, you know? mm. I was thinking we should um, explore a little bit, um, I mean it's relevant to the book, but when you came around in early 2018, mm. we talked about Tinderbox, but we also did talk about your um, art school time a little bit and, and obviously your life mm. as, as I do on these podcasts up to that. So fill me in a little bit. I mean, you you, you had a, a very wee child at that time. Oh, yeah, I'm my thinking, daughter's yeah, now six. Yeah, yeah, I was trying to work out because my son's about to turn 10. And, yeah. I, you know, as I say, I don't know you super well, but we, we see each other walking around yes. the, the neighbourhood and at one time both with, I think, push chairs. Like, yeah, you probably yeah. had a pram and I was probably just finishing off with the, yeah. the buggy at some point. But also me wandering around town with my son, particularly on Friday afternoons. Yeah. Um, so what, what's been I wonder what's been going on for you in these last three years. Obviously writing this book, but for a time you were, I mean, you've published on the spin-off, but for a time you were an actual art editor for a section yeah, on the spin-off. Yeah, that's right. What, what, what sort of things can you bring up that you've been doing across the last three years that... Yeah, sure. 
I and obviously a lot of parenting. Yeah, when I saw you last for that podcast in 2018, Fern would have been about two going on three. That year I did go to America as well. I went to America and I met several key professional mermaids. Mm. I went to the Coney Island Mermaid Parade. I don't know if this had happened when I saw you. I don't think so, but again, you know, I follow you on Facebook, so I think I know some of this stuff. But yeah, it's interesting. I went to LA. I met Robert Short, the guy who designed and made the Splash Mermaid tail mm. that now multiple mermaids have met and associated with and learnt the craft of mermaid tail the, creation The from. Tom Savini of mermaid tails. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, really, he's a special effects designer. Yeah, yeah. And this is another interesting bleed between film and um, in, into industries that are now enabled by the internet, by, mm. the, by the way people are... Uh, making and creating new careers mm. through the internet. Um, so I had an interesting voyage there and that was the first time I'd left Fern and she was then just over two and I left her for two weeks and I remember meeting a mermaid in Florida who said, God, I could never leave my kids as I was at some pool mm. with her having an underwater mermaid lesson. And it was really hard and strange to leave Fern then. Mm. Uh, at the time, I worked part-time on a contract for City Gallery Wellington digitising their archive which actually meant I was um, writing small histories for for exhibitions from their archive and choosing slides and getting them prepared for digitisation and we were publishing that history online. That was originally three days a week and then just two days a week and I had a grant and was working on the, the mermaid research and lots of writing then in 2018 um, and then at the end of that year I had my two big abject bumps the first one came from the agent just mm. before Christmas 2018 and the next one came in the new year and then I had a period of um, emotional destitution not the only one I've had I might <laughs> add uh, it's a regular regular visiting place for moi mm. um, and I was just, you know, really floored by this idea that I had to write a fucking book about me. <laughs> I was so annoyed and embarrassed about it. I just thought, oh my god. Yes, yeah, so it's the it's the thing that, and I think it might have been it might have been Colin Peacock that raised this actually with you. I'm sure other interviewers have, but it's sort of. On one level, people go, that must be the best thing ever for a writer, but that's probably the most terrifying thing as well. I just or think it's instead. really strange. Yeah. Like when, How do you get your head fully around it? And also, like, you know, people would say, what is your book about? Mm. And I'd go, me? Mm. And then they'd look. And you know it's not a great pitch. Like, this isn't the pitch. Mm. But, it, but that's what it's about. That's true. Anyway, in 2019, I also thought I'd been art writing for a long time and I wanted to do something different. So I spoke to Mark Amory, a fellow art writer, mm. and I was forming a relationship with Duncan Grieve and the spin-off and I wanted to run my own art section, but I knew I didn't have capacity to do that by myself. Mark and I ended up forming it together and we, um, and we started publishing one to two art pieces a week. We really wanted to speak to a more generalist audience um, who 
that wouldn't just be composed of artists and curators like that was the vision they, mm. the, of course we wanted those people to come along with us but we I liked the idea that you know just more people who don't make art could think oh yeah I'd like to go and see that or that's interesting uh, you know I really wanted to speak some, in that way there were some really good pieces published on that there were some good pieces so we learned how difficult it was together I mean Mark's got a long history with mm. publishing mm. um in many formats so he was a great person to work with at speed on things um and we and it was a really it was a really fantastic experience but by god did it take my life over Mm. you know so i was running that in 2019 working two days a week in the archive and running this and trying to and now seeking into writing a book Mm. about me Mm. um and of course you know each year fern is getting older um and uh, so and then somewhere in the middle of 2019 my mother said her cancer was back again her blood count was up she had a type of cancer called multiple myeloma which is a cancer of the blood she had first had it in her early 50s and she'd been in remission for a good 17 plus years Mm. and she'd been being monitored um so she needed to start being treated again for it and um as far as we knew at the time in 2019 all things were looking good you know like it was looking good um her prognosis but one of the things that they need to do for this type of cancer is a stem cell um transplant um, a big operation that she was preparing for in december so as we coasted towards that um December 2019 an opportunity came out of the either to take a job essentially managing the events full-time at City Gallery Wellington. I was aware that one of the problems with my mermaid book was that I was really really on uh, skidding along the bottom money wise and it was starting to really drain Mm. me and Rich and our relationship and just fucking everything Mm. and I think it was really affecting me writing like sometimes you just can't write when you're constantly worried about how you're going to make money about making enough money yeah I mean, some people seem to do it, but do it in your 20s. Don't yeah. still be doing <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's right. Like, no energy ah. to still be doing it later. Once, totally. You know, all of that kind of stuff, Simon. So I, I went for this job. I remember being with mum in hospital, like writing the job application and sending it in and her and us sitting there together and going, is this okay? And she's, yes, dear. And, you know, she's a lovely person. Um, and I'm still publishing two things a week on the spin-off as an editor and then bang suddenly she had that um, very serious operation in the at the end of December um, I got the job and then suddenly she was brutally ill and died um, on the 31st of December 2019 and then um, that wasn't part of the plan. That mm. wasn't in the framework for the, the book. book. Yeah. Like, she knew I was writing the book. I remember... She knew she was in the book at that she point? Like, she was in the she's book. A, she's, yep. she's really right through the book. Yeah, she's, she knows it's about my life. She's the next most 
consistent character apart yes. from you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She knew she was in the book. She mm. knew I was going to talk about the man with the purple van. I mm-hmm. am proud of my essay. Sorry, mother. As hard <laughs> as it is, mm. I am proud of that essay, and mm. I do think it speaks to some deep truths. And some people might just think it's funny, but it's not just funny. No. Like it's actually really not just funny. Mm. I mean, comedy is very wedded to tragedy. <laughs> Mm. Oh, totally. It's just like a flip side. Yeah. So, end of 2019, she suddenly dies, and then a few, and then I'm meant to be on a Michael King residency, which I kick along. Then I'm doing that in March as we go into an unprecedented global pandemic. Mm. So, I was meant to publish this book in 2020, but it just got a little slowed along by mm. A, mum dying, B, global pandemic. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Um, and see full-time job yeah, running yeah. events in a pandemic <laughs> so I don't want to write a book about that one. no 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 but it's I was thinking you know reading particularly the end of the book and knowing I mean you talk about it that that it wasn't your plan to write about your mother in that way no I was thinking the two I guess the two blessings to have come from the situation are that you started the book before she got sick. Yeah. And that she isn't experiencing at her age and frailness, which you, you mentioned, yes. the, the events of the last 18 months. Yes. That those are the two. Would have been those a worry. Are, but on a, on a more selfish level for you, if you hadn't started the book, that would have derailed it, if not completely, then it would have held it back for a long, long time, wouldn't it? I think I. I had already written the first third of the book, the childhood section, when she died, but I hadn't written the two other sections. It gave me a lot of impetus because I I knew I wanted to finish and I was very frustrated throughout 2020 not being able to finish. I was really, really frustrated by that. Um, But I just had a few too many factors at play um, to get where I wanted to. But yeah, I mean, yes, certainly mum would have been an immune compromised person um, and that would have added a thick layer of stress to what's already been a hugely stressful situation for most of us and some of us more than others, of course. Um, I think... um, I think the book would have been a much poorer, like now Art in the Waiting Room seems absolutely integral to it. Mm. Um, But I noticed in Sally Blundell's review, she's like, she skips over all of this period that's actually covered in Tinderbox. And it's like, Mm. oh yeah, I'm pleased to be up to date with where I am now. And I'm ready to write more from where I am now as a person. You know, I've had to look back on, on an as- on aspects of my character and my choices th- through a distance of time and um, it's it's nice to have done it but it's also good to step away from it again um, but it has been I didn't write it for it to be cathartic but it, it's had its cathartic moments and mm. it's had its tricky moments too as I think writing memoir is tricky and I do have to consider oh what have I left out I have left out some some important things for different reasons different good reasons um, but then others like the boyfriend uh, who I had for six months you know yeah why didn't I write about that I mean it's interesting what you put out there and what you don't yeah, totally. And what constellates and forms a nugget of a story and what doesn't. I was, I think, 
most intrigued by the chapter, the essay about your dad. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. And um, I wondered what, mm. you, what you have to say about that. And I mean, I was, I was, I mean, you've read a tiny bit already, but I was keen for you to read something from here. But I almost want you to read something from that because yeah, I, sure. I, um, the difficult father. Yeah, I can do that. I find the, um, I find the tone of that piece mm. fascinating. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in a in a good way, in a really good way. But yeah, would you read a bit? Yeah, from that? sure. Dear Donald, it's hard to write this letter to you because you were dead. I only write letters to the dead these days. This is the postmodernist lament. I'm supposed to be writing an essay about my father, but it's difficult because I'm 46 and my father is 67 and alive, rush, hush, the sound of the sea. And I want to tell the story of when I was 17 and he was 38 and I lived with him for the first time since I was three in his shoebox at Lyle Bay by the rush, hush. Dear Donald, what happened that year? A. Anthropology B. Philosophy C. The sound of the waves breaking at Lyle Bay D. Donald Barthamay Your books were lined up on a low wooden shelf in the hallway. Sadness. The dead father. Forty stories. Come back, Dr Caligari. Nearby windbreakers on hooks. Above the bookshelf a framed print of Catherine Mansfield in a red dress. A fat book on her lap, not one of your slim pomo classics, Donald. Her painted pupils gazed intently towards the windbreakers, rush, hush, the sound of my father reading. Turn the page. Dear Donald, my father is a big reader, voracious, I get that from him. The shoebox was his nickname for his rectangular house at Lyle Bay, which had a flat roof like a lid. Inside the shoebox, his running shoes and volumes of books, their spines battered and creased, wearing out-of-date dust jackets. Recently, I picked a spine from his bookshelf and held it up to face him. The Dead Father. Black font for a black title. Huh. I started that one but couldn't finish it, Dad said. I haven't read it yet either. There are some things one doesn't rush, hush. See, to hear you read it is fantastic, because I think you could probably win a poetry slam with that. <laughs> or be very well placed. <laughs> I did start writing poetry. I first wrote yeah, poetry. That's yeah. very clear. Yeah. yeah. I think, And I think it's much more... I mean, it makes sense because these are essays, but it's much more overt in this than in your first book, the the poetry voice. Oh, is it? I th I think from yeah. memory, it's there a little bit in Tinderbox too, but it's much more overt in this. Yeah, yeah. well, it's interesting that you've plucked this one out as an anomaly. Look, it's mm. really hard to write about Dad. Dad is alive, alive. Mm. I say that in here, mm. and you know, I love my father. Mm. My father is incredibly well read. He is hugely intelligent, and he's also a deeply feeling person who's um, really no bullshit. He's mm. got a real no bullshit quality. And he's um, he's very humane and um, surprising in lots of elements of his character and his soul. And yet we have this experience where my mum and him separated when I was three and I grew up with her and he was a dad on holidays. Mm. And The Difficult Father is about the first year I lived with him again as a 17-year-old in Wellington going to Victoria University studying philosophy and anthropology. It was a real difficult year for us um, 
and for me um, and chronicling that was hard and yes I did feel I couldn't say everything and yet I also felt and thought what happened that year which keeps on being an echo and mm. echo because what happens is so emotional like I keep on joking to people it's not like I've been kept in a cellar <laughs> You know, like, the worst things haven't yeah. happened to me. Yeah. This yeah. is not the worst thing, mm. you know? Mm -mm. Um, you know, touch touch vinyl sofa. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. So these, these are emotional landscapes that are deeply woven into the fabric of self and who I am as a writer. And yeah. Donald Barthamay is an important writer and touchstone to me and I think is, I mean, he's an incredible author. Um, postmodernism is very looked down on and I kind of struggled with this and then I thought I've just got to own it I've just got to own that I'm from the postmodern yeah. kind of fraternity and I've just got to come out there every other fucking woman's owning her modernism so I'm just going to come out and be loud and proud <laughs> as a postmodernist mm. even though I seem to be the only one <laughs> you know uh, standing up and, and, and speaking with the tricks and techniques of postmodernism which I know can be thought to be just distancing, distancing. But sometimes there's a need to create distance. I think it's a complex essay. I think I've got more to say, a mm. lifetime's work to say about the inheritance between generations of, um, of an emotional landscape and of, uh, and of art and taste. And there are echoes of this in here with Dad. They're more pronounced with Mum, but they're there with both of them. Mm -hmm. And thinking about who both of them are and who I am and what forces shaped all of us and our unseen generations going back is increasingly of interest to me. Sorry, yeah. I don't no, have short answers here, No, do that's I? great. No, you've got podcast length answers, which is why <laughs> I invited you back. It's great. I, I thought that, um, I mean, I, it's funny to think this because you'll, you'll either instantly tell me I'm wrong or if I'm right, it sort of doesn't mean anything. But I felt that one that, that might have been one of the more hard-fought essays to pin down for you in the book. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Yeah, it just it reads like that, but it reads beautifully. And, yeah. and it was great to have you read some of it because I think that um, really casts it in a new light for me because I couldn't quite imagine your physical voice reading it, um, but I felt it's just a tonal shift in the book. Yeah, it is. It's it just is, noticeable. Yeah, it is tonally very In a different. really compelling way. Like, yeah. it's, you know, just the timing of it too, like it, of where it's placed. Because this the familiarity you have with your mother the fondness the familiarity i mean you you are your mother's mother in some ways throughout yeah, the book you're yeah, you're a yeah. carer for her yeah. because of the um broken marriage i yeah. think you know like uh, that's how that's how i mean uh, my parents are still together but that's how i imagine it that the child of a divorced parent that stays with one yeah. you become a bit of a a best friend yes. slash parent carer and then you had the actual you know, you've seen your mother's life through. Mm. But with your, with your father, you've got this detachment mm. that you may never, ever solve. And mm. I, when I was reading it, I kept thinking of the... There's a Finn Brothers song. When they did that album together, Neil and Tim did that album together in the early 2000s, there's a song that they both sing on 
where they talk about we stare at each other like the banks of a river and we can't get any closer than that. Mm. And I, I think it's the most honest they've been about their relationship. Mm. And I love that that sort of, I mean, I've probably butchered the line, but it's that's roughly it. And that came to mind reading your thing with your dad, just going, there are these things that connect you, not just blood. There are these mm. things that he's passed down. Mm. Oh, yeah, totally. And you, you know, and you could feel that. But also there's just such a, remo- like an actual physical remove had happened for so long that there's such a philosophical remove or a spiritual remove. There, there is some. There is yeah. a big piece about distance in yes. there. There yeah. is, and I guess it, it creates distance. The text as well as, mm. Um, mm. Uh, whereas with mum, everything's more kismet. I mean, not to say that there aren't some difficult ones about mum, and I think too sure. sometimes the voice. Sometimes the voice, which is, you know, kidding and wisecracking along with you, Mm. will then suddenly turn just for a paragraph. But with the dad one, the voice is markedly different the whole time. Well, that's it. It's like, like, I I read the book going, essentially, you're holding our hand and going, run with me through this wild ride. Come with me. And, you know, if we happen to open you know, a cupboard door and see a dead body, I'm going to show you that. But, yeah. but I'm also going to parade you through these toys. I'm going to take you, you know, come and wa- come and rewatch this film with me. Come and yeah. do this. <laughs> and then with that essay, there's none of that. It's these short oh, little yeah. fragments of just like, you stand back and I'm going to tell you this stuff. And you're not going to fully, you know, you're not going to be, it's not as... It's not as instantly page turnery as the other stuff, yeah. but in a weird way, it is because of that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well, I think you've I think you've come to something really interesting. Yes, it was hard to write. Yes, the first draft was markedly different and mm. had even less dad in it. Mm. And then I had to find ways to to get closer to something that is still that is still a mystery. And I mean, it's not the only mystery in here, but you're right that it's still alive, the, the, you know, our relationship is still alive. And when I showed Dad the essay, I mean, I did ring him up, Simon, and I cried and I said, Dad, you know I was trying to write a book about mermaids. And I mean, he pitied me because yeah. he didn't understand yeah, that yeah. that was true. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember showing Dad one of the first mermaids that I really loved, this mermaid who I'd interviewed, and I showed him the picture of her, and he looked at it and went, this is just totally you. <laughs> so there's a lot of kismet stuff there, but yeah, that bit was really difficult. Mm. Um, but it doesn't mean no. I'm being disingenuous in other places, and I, I really, because I'm not, and I really felt like when I'd cracked on the Tallulah Bankhead thing and the birthday mm. card mum gave me at 14, I was like, by God, Eureka. I finally got yeah. to the bottom of something <laughs> here. And there were other things that I had sitting in my trash file, like Days at Arata with Reverb, and then I found them months later and I was like, oh, why did I put that in the trash? <laughs> like I'm hauling that one out. Mm. Um, but you know, before um, when we were talking about your partner mm. and how she realizes how much inheritance she has from her her grandmothers yeah. or from her family and the and the values that get imparted down through the years. Mm. I mean, the days at Arata with reverb is a piece about that, and I probably didn't realize until I wrote this what um, what values had been imparted to me and what kind of quibble I'd taken with them until I was looking back at a distance. 
you know, contrasting the messages of the prayer of serenity with experiences I have in a massage parlour much mm. later. Mm. And then thinking about the days at Arata, which, which starts with the line, you know, about going placidly, you know. Um, yeah, so I, I really enjoyed things like that, but I, I completely recognise that not the same amount of people will have read the days at Arata. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, like I... I get that. And there's a lot of Catholicism in here. And and there's a lot of naughtiness that is born of Catholicism. That is a shiny new reading copy. That's not a battered... I can hear the pages squelch as you're turning them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the smell of newness. Yeah, yeah. Well, because this book has come out in level four, yes. I haven't really read from it yet. I yeah, haven't right. done an event. I've done one Zoom event with this. Okay. Um... You know, and uh, that's that's that, that's, that's a shame, but that's quite good because you've done all your promo and your public. You've got all your story. You've got all your stories lined up. You've got all your all of I mean, those you, came out. Yeah. All of those were in transit. All yeah. of those press copies were already out there. Yeah. Things were being booked in, and then we hit level four. So everything kind of went ahead except all of the events. Yeah, yeah, but now you've got like you. I mean, you you would probably have this down anyway, but you got all your banter and all your patter down, ready to go for. I've got banter. Yeah, yeah. I've got banter for days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you've yeah, got yeah. banter too. Like, yeah. Some of us are born to banter. Some yeah. of us aren't. Yeah, that's And right. some are writers, but they're not born to banter. Funnily yeah. enough, I am. I've noticed that um, a little bit with podcasting, that sometimes you get a person that you're like, you're just going to be... I mean, I, I think I've been pretty lucky. I haven't published any um, podcast episodes that I haven't enjoyed. And I haven't, you know, I don't think anyone's being disappointing or disappointed hopefully mm. but you definitely feel it sometimes that a person lives more on the page yeah than, than, and that's absolutely fine yeah you know, not everyone is yeah. animated in real life or or interested in talking about yeah. the writing because the writing is where they've done the talking yeah that's yeah. right and i mean the, all I of it's valid right yeah that's types. it all of it's yeah. correct that's There's right. no right one way to do it, I don't think. But it is enjoyable when you get someone that is really, you know, what I've enjoyed about your interviews, the, the two that I've done with you and just listening to a couple of the ones that you've done with this book, is you really own, like I think in the book, it might be one of the more um, self-aware memoirs I've read, if I'm going to call it a memoir. Um, which I think it is. I think it's both a memoir and a collection of essays, which yeah. is the magic trick of it, that it's both. Yeah. Um, but I think you're you're one of the more self-aware writers I've seen write about themselves. And then you have this confidence when you speak about the writing that you're like, yeah, I'm pretty funny. This bit's funny. This bit I like. I'm good with titles. Uh, I've always been a quick person. And a lot of people couldn't own that in that way. They're just, you know, you're not doing it in any kind of bragging way at all. Well, I'm certainly not bragging. I mean, no. God, I would have loved to have been a different kind of writer. I'm still not at peace with the kind of writer do, I am. I was going to say, do you... Do I'll you, never be at peace with it. I well, that's what will keep you writing, though, which well, is good, I, I think. Um, I was going to ask you if you had closed the door on being a novelist, because you you know, you know, talk about uh, being essentially a frustrated novelist or, or, or a failed novelist or yeah. whatever you want to call it. But I think, like, reading this, I was struck thinking... Um, you know, you, you sort of said in one of the interviews that you've arguably found your voice in this way, but I still think this is a voice that translates to novel writing. You just haven't done it yet. 
So is that the next project, do you think, or a future project still? I'm loath to talk about the <laughs> yeah, next project, because look what a mess I made of it last time. <laughs> I mean, I'd be the last person who should be trusted oh, on what my next what my next project is. Don't you, don't, you think, <laughs> don't you think it's been a happy mess, though? Like, it's, yeah. it, you know, I mean, it's brought you publicity... <laughs> arguably yeah. I think you would have got it anyway but it's definitely bought you publicity I mean what a what a what a masterstroke to have a successful project that encapsulates a failed project within it yes. that is still that still has that you know that 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 um hasn't isn't dead and buried like that could still happen yeah so and well the, when you're submerged and you're yes. a mermaid you can yes. always re-emerge do you think i mean i can't remember if i asked you this last time but do you think sometimes i feel like we get mm. these projects and actually you know because i've noticed this with you know i think one of the great things about doing this podcast is for me is that some people aren't aren't really um worthy of a documentary or a biography but they've got a great story and it can be encapsulated on a podcast and it's more than a feature article and it takes a different yeah. form do you think that the thing with the mermaid thing is that maybe the book is not the form for it i mean i know there are already mermaid documentaries um, but you know, is that part of the thing that maybe you know? When I said to you, yeah. when I said to you um, jokingly uh, that the feedback from the agent and the publisher might have been that we 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 don't like mermaids, we like you. Um, what I mean is, what they don't like about mermaids is that they can't see mermaids selling. Is is what they don't is what they maybe don't like about it is they can't see it being a project that because for everyone that's on board with it and on board with you as the as a writer still has that stumbling block of I don't really care about mermaids uh, when they're in the when they're deep in it they've suddenly realized that a that doesn't matter or B I care about them more than this person's helped me realize I care about them more than I need to but that can be a really hard selling point I guess for me I'm so there for mermaids yeah that yeah it that, just so you can't, that's what I mean. you can't see that, it no yeah. I can't see that at all yeah. I I, yeah, I'm not sure what I'll do next. I'm not yeah. sure if I can write a novel or not. My first book, unpublished, was a novel called The Santa Parade. Bits of that book have wound up in this one, things I learned at art school, in the sex industry sections, which mm. The Santa Parade explored in a different form. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what else I can write. But I do like writing about art. I... I do like um, interviews, which are the form I was mm. exploring. With you know, what did you find so addictive subjects? about that? I meant to ask you when you were saying you, you you found them very addictive. I think it's a bit like collecting smurfs. Mm. You know, you see, you get one, and then you see the oh look that one. I want that one as well, and then you 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 know you want the whole village. You want all the smurfs. Like, and I found you know people would say to me, oh, can you sense the theme or you're probably getting to a point where you're getting, um, diff you know, the same information coming up. I mean, these, these are people talking with their rational minds, whereas I'm interviewing with my irrational mind. Yeah. So then I'll be talking to a mermaid and she'll say, and she'll be talking to an animal and then it's apparent she's got two parrots in her house. And then I'm like, well, what are they called? You know, I just became really, I, it's the human subject, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. And yes, there were common things, but there were actually wildly different things motivating each person as well and I suppose uh, I, I just 
I guess my voice is conversational on the page and I am someone who's interested in conversation mm. as a form mm. and I the interview gives us a chance to explore that mm. with different people you know so I, I would just always find that there was something new and by and large I relate to what you say what whereas where by and large I really enjoyed the interviews and it was mm. not often that I felt one hadn't worked like mainly mm. they work although mm. some people I could tell I got a lot closer to yeah. than others uh, well again I, I think that's one of the things that's great about it isn't it is mm. that you can be as prepared as you like you can have your style down but I feel like each one is still different yes, because, same. because you're different each day and you're encountering people you know everyone's different on any day so sometimes you get a person on there on a really good day sometimes you get them on a bad day and that can still result in a really good interview for that reason yeah. or you can be not feeling it to begin with but you just you know somehow you pull out your A game whatever every single one is different and all of those variables are yeah. helpful I think one of my big things is with interviews you're not on subject until you're off subject mm. but actually maybe that's my whole mm -hmm. modus operandi with writing as well sometimes when we're too intentional on things and I think the mermaid draft might have been an example yeah. the intent has become too strong yes you're bearing down on it too directly with your conscious mind and actually you have to find a way for that conscious mind to get into the back seat and become a passenger where where some other crazy bastard takes over and then the ride becomes something bigger and different than anyone could have imagined mm. and that's the point one I'm always trying to get to um, I think I'm becoming a little bit more open to form like I'm now becoming interested in I was lying in bed thinking about this this morning isn't it funny how some people are interviewing me they haven't read the book but then they're quoting from my website and then it made me more interested mm. in like oh what about the form of the website maybe I should think more deeply <laughs> about what I'm communicating with there if that's going to be the primary source <laughs> you know Can like you? I, I'm really interested in the way I now watch things with Wikipedia open yeah, like yeah, I'm completely yeah. addicted to it and I'm really interested in creating more of those experiences where you're you're working across different formats all the time to get all of well, these things. to go back to that in your book, you know, you, yeah, you you have this great way of, you know, you were talking about um, sharing some of the information about the making of Elf and how, you, you know, you could go deeper in that. I was going to say, you know, you're blessed with the fact that you're not a rotten mansplainer like me and or, you know, other, other people where you're going over the top about it, but actually you're, you're sort of sharing your research you know, just in sketch form. Yeah, yeah. It, it's almost like a, you could do this too. Oh, Here, yeah. Here's what I've done for us. Yeah, You know, yeah, kind yeah. of thing. That is the kind of tone I got from it of like, because some of the things you'd say, I'm like, well, I know that already, but I like the way you've explained that to me. Because yeah. I found it out in the same way. Like, I'm not, I'm not, you know, cleverer than you and you're not cleverer than no. me. We've, we've, we've used the same way to find this stuff out. No, I'm definitely yeah. not an expert, and I'm not mm. ever not, speaking yeah, as yeah. an expert. I suppose that's one of the expectations, too, about a book about mermaids. Am I some historical mm. expert who's mm. telling you something? But no, I'm not. And then how do I? And then how do I do that? Um, and yet bring people along with me. Um, and it seems with personal anecdotes, I've got enough of a balance. Although I suspect the the ones the essays that become the cornerstone 
milestones of the book have more emotional um, derivative rather than mm. the, than the elf, you know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But like they all kind of bounce along together, and and they represent a a life I, more or less well lived in the sense that most of us hopefully have a life that is balanced with joys and TV and coffees mm. as well as as trauma mm. of of the you know standard common garden variety that most of us experience yeah. some people you know ha- have life level much bigger things at them and then and then they step up as writers to that different and intense challenge um but I, I, I have, I have learnt that the voice is humorous. I've learnt that by default, trying to write deeply serious things. <laughs> um, so I learnt that by default, and mm. then it does seem to, it's, it's just best if I just let it come, and I let a lot of this book come, and I didn't put too much pressure on it, and I think it's better for that. I mean, I have seen people review it and go, oh, these aren't really shaped like essays, and it's like. Yeah, you reckon? <laughs> you know, like I do things mm. like, how long do either of us have? I'm going to keep this short. She was no Daryl Hannah. And then we move along. Let's keep rolling. Yeah. I suppose that is a bit, like, I suppose that is a little cheeky. But then... It's great though, isn't it? I mean, I used to I used to um, feel like I had to put on the um, little proviso that oh, my poems aren't really poems. Oh, yeah. You know, they're more stories, they're more yeah. anecdotes, they're almost little essays and yeah, right, whatever. But it's like, then I put a book of them out, and it's kind of like, in a way, fuck it, they're poems. Yeah. Now, it doesn't mean I think they're as good or as worth your time as Billy Collins or any, you know, whoever, but they exist. Yeah. And I can, I can stop saying, oh, they're not really poems. Yeah. They're just things I wrote. Yeah. And... I think I could actually republish that book in straight paragraphs and, yeah. the, and the meaning of it would be the same. Yeah. And I know that and that's why, yeah, I'm not going to do that because, you know, but I know I could have done that, that they could all just be little prose pieces. And, you know, a person can decide that, 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 that they're not very poetic. But to me, that that's just how I've ended up writing poetry. That's fine. And that's the, you know, that's the thing that's happening with the essay shape now too, I think, is that it's having its shackles removed. I think it's a very mongrel form. Yeah. And having read um, Fran Lebowitz's Metropolitan yeah. Life, you know, I kind of beg to differ. Like, that's written a hell of a long time ago. And, you know, like, her techniques and, and stuff aren't... I mean, they're different, but they're not... Re- some of the forms aren't radically different to the, to this way of, of jotting things down. Um, of that semblance of, of having just jotted some things I mean, down. if she wrote how she spoke, and as often as she speaks, she'd be the most prolific <laughs> writer, and it'd be hilarious, but somehow she's managed to have these two actually quite separate careers as yeah. writer and speaker, and she's made a career, you know, I guess... Talking about careers out of fail, uh, books out of failed projects, she's made a career out of writer's block. 
I which know. Which is astonishing. And she's an entertainer. Yeah. One guy who reviewed Tinderbox, one guy who reviewed it in England, said, you know, among other things, Dunn's an entertainer. And I thought, mm, there's real truth in that. Yeah. I am an entertainer. And that's yeah. what works about um, some of the radio interviews or various things that just wouldn't suit every writer. And that's cool, like we said before. But Fran is an entertainer too. Yeah, I totally. mean, the uber entertainer. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. the whole personality is what you're either responding to or not. I, I think she's, I think there's a, a she's a, in a weird way, I think she's a little bit like John Waters too. Or that, yeah, you know, he's got that yeah. same thing. And he's actually become more of a writer than a filmmaker now. But so he's switched careers too, yeah. uh, arguably. But, you know, to me, he's a raconteur. That's his, that's, that's his. Um, he so scene, is. You know, that's his thing. He's an entertainer and a raconteur. You wanna, uh, you wanna hear him speak. Yes. And I got to interview him once over the phone. And oh, was, what was it like? Amazing, you know. Yeah. And it was amazing. He was incredible. And uh, my favourite thing that happened in that that I think just shows how smart he is, is, uh, and how amazing he is. Is I thought I was being clever because he, he said so. You know, because he's famous for his Baltimore. Um, for living there, and I said something about, oh, what's new in Baltimore, thinking, you know, that's a pretty obscure Frank Zappa reference, and it also could just pass, so I just said it, and he started talking about stuff, and then about two minutes into his spiel, he goes, oh, and you're like this, they've actually just erected a statue of Frank Zappa, blah, blah, so he totally, you know, got me, acknowledged me, yeah. trumped, trumped me, but didn't make me feel stink at all. Yeah. It was totally like, you're actually going to dig this. It wasn't a, oh, I'm going to put you in your place, you're trying to be clever. Because I wasn't, I don't think I was trying to be clever, it just sort of came out. Yeah. And he, I was just like, fuck, I'm speaking to someone who, who rolls in the way I hoped he did. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was quite amazing. Some, yeah. pe- some people are... Their life's work is very personality driven. Yes, yeah. And I think I've learnt that I am one of the species. I agree. And so when I'm hearing the advice from other writers about you leave yourself behind and all that Mm. kind of advice, I mean, yes, for some you do, and I don't doubt that they have total immersion in other fictional worlds, etc., etc. But imagine John Waters getting that advice. Like, some of us are just this other kind of species. I mean, I, I certainly don't put myself up there with John and no. Fran although I did make a quip that I felt it was like Fran cross with Anne of Green Gables via Huntley because I kind of <laughs> felt that was useful like um, in the way the personality wants to present you yeah. know yeah um, but the, it's been instructive for me that that that's kind of my shtick um and I think we're on we're in interesting territory here where um, artists are changing form all the time. Mm. And yeah, John Waters, you, you you go one way for a bit, and then you, and then you're off doing something else that's come organically from these other. Yeah, well, look, my my you know one of my um, f- sort of pe- uh, obsessions at the moment is John Carpenter, and thinking also about how he's just completely changed careers. I mean, he hasn't made a film for eleven years. Uh, he's a musician. Wow. And he and he always was, you know. Yeah. The music was crucial to his movies, but he is basically a musician, and uh, you know that's him and John Waters are quite similar. They're, they're both given um, the same reason for not making films. They can't afford it. They oh, can't. They're, they're both independent filmmakers, and yeah. sh- you know sh- uh, investors won't back them anymore. Yeah. And they can't make the things they want to make. Yeah. 
yeah. so they won't compromise so they've found other outlets and that's a cool example of of, of morphing I mean there's yeah. a financial reason for doing it but they've ultimately found a groove that is both artistically satisfying and and more financially secure yeah. for them because John Waters can write a book go on a speaking tour I mean he's he's almost David Sedaris almost you know I mean in, in that he's operating in the same kind of world as him yeah and that's amazing it is you know, amazing you know you can't imagine David Sedaris going I'm gonna make sitcoms I'm gonna make a movie you just can't imagine you know he'd, he'd write brilliant lines I'm sure but you just can't imagine that happening he's so set up in what he does mm. and he's lucky that that still works for him but these guys have made that weird shift they've kind of felt they had to I think it's a little bit true for David Lynch too who's a little bit more um, mm. a crop multidiscipline anyway but you know I think he's sort of like exploring other avenues than just the straight movie I think it's interesting when artists even of that stature are having Mm. financial constraints, which is something artists of our stature, you know, our more humble means, (laughs) like, wow, what a jolt, right? Well, we're almost born from financial constraints, you know, they're not thrust upon us, we live with them no matter what. Yeah. 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 And I I mean, I found it interesting how Robert Short, who created the Splash Tale, um... The special effects industry has obviously changed and been radically affected by CGI. Mm. So then all of these talents start migrating into other areas, Mm. um, Mm. which is really interesting. And that's a little bit like what you've just described with Carpenter and Waters and Mm. how their talents start migrating as one um, aspect of revenue dries up or becomes crunched and under pressure. I think David Cronenberg too, actually. And they're all much of a muchness. I know he's doing more acting these days popping up in things as an actor you know same thing like because you know you still make a movie but like people won't take that same gamble on that stuff it's i just find that quite interesting i think it's remarkable and one of the big highlights for me when i did the spin-off art section was i met one of the gorilla girls you know the feminist collective the gorilla girls Mm. who've always dressed up in gorilla masks Mm. and you don't know exactly who they are and have done activism around feminism um, which is much more diverse than uh, than I had remembered when I encountered their show at Auckland Art Gallery, and I went and met Frida, um, and she she said, "Oh no, we don't we don't make any money from this. Mm. We don't make any money from mm. this art." And I thought, as soon as she said it, it was starkly obvious. Oh. And yet they are in the history books. You would never expect to learn about Western 20th Mm. century art and not encounter the Gorilla Girls as Mm. part of that journey. So it's kind of fascinating how money just can be this incredible chestnut that so many of us, um, you know, can't quite crack. And yet others do. Uh, yeah yeah totally I think the relationship between um, culture and product is just something that we we all wrestle with in our own ways no matter where we're at you know I mean I think my outcome is you know my my findings are you find a way to get paid doing something and then you find a way to make a creative project yeah and if you're fucking lucky there's a venn diagram there yeah yeah yeah, some and some days you get to sit in the middle of it yeah and if you don't you know those two circles are are the two things that fill your life 
you yeah. know, along with your other hobbies and your family and friends and things. But th- that's how you do it. Like, that's it. Like, the whole... Because I just couldn't... I mean, I, I received Creative New Zealand funding once. Um, I think I've only applied for it twice. Mm. And I was thrilled to get it the first time. And the second time, I didn't get it. And, I, you know, probably didn't deserve it. And my application was pretty last minute. Um it was f- it was for this podcast and I don't know if you get funding for podcasts and I thought I felt like I made a good case for it but um, at the same time I think anyone can do a podcast so they probably argue it doesn't cost much um, and I just sort of thought that was it I'm done I'm never going to do that again like I was lucky to get it the first time I just need to make this shit myself I just need and just find a way to make it work I I think for me, like, one of the things I had to confront and things I learned at art school was this private shame of my student loan Mm. and that I'd actually caught every every rung on the way down with it. Yeah. Um, And uh, I still have one and I don't own a house. And these are massive shameful things for me that don't impact you in the same way when you're in your 20s. Um, I, I think, you know, each decade of life, all of the middle Definitely. class accoutrements mm. become more pronounced depending on what kind of society you're living in. So uh, it's hard. For, for me, conversation about money and art is, is really difficult and yet enmeshed and um, you'd be a fool to say that there's uh, no relationship there, yeah. like that there, that there isn't an important meeting ground there yet one doesn't necessarily beget the other at any time and even people who've become wildly successful like JK Rowling, you know I'm sure she wasn't sitting down on the train plotting to um, have a, fran- a movie franchise, yeah. you know yeah, yeah. like there's, a, there's an aspect of of the universe at play that I don't understand and I don't think I ever will, um, yet I'm at swim in it. And uh, I know that was one of the most embarrassing things to put in the book, but n- now somehow I've confronted it. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, you can move on somewhat like you would. Yeah, like yeah. in a way, There's in a, a way it's been yeah. good to, to actually come out loud and say it. Hopefully it was a a good compliment saying you know you've actually managed a book of essays and a memoir at the same time because I think it plays to the, the strengths of both because yeah. there is a bit of a fucking pandemic of essay books <laughs> yeah, I, know. I mean it's not the most pressing pandemic happening right <laughs> no, now which, which is why it's it's allowed to happen I think yeah. but there is you know and I'm guilty of buying heaps of them and enjoying some of them and then just not even getting to some of them because yeah, just like yeah. that seems like a good idea but it's too much like it's just too too much of people's yeah, I mean, there are so many great writers you'll never get to. Yeah, so, I know. You know, so how do you, you know, how do you... Dealing with the glut of content is something that's hard yeah. for all of us. And I can always feel like, oh, I've got to read that one. Oh, I've got to read that one. Oh, I've got to read that one. Whereas actually, if my job is to write, then I actually don't have to read any of them. I just have to write my own one and somehow stumble through it. But do you find, I mean, reading is a necessity for a writer on some level and you've obviously you know it isn't just the reading that you do while you're writing in some cases you're drawing on the reading that you did and this this is very obvious in your book too you're actually drawing on the reading you did 30 years ago yeah that's right 20 years ago and so forth but um it is a tricky balancing act that isn't it it? i'm gonna write but i still need to read something but we do so much reading on our screens and we don't and we and we if we tallied that up 
you it's know, a lot. it was a real treat to read your book and go, I'm actually shutting the internet down and sitting with a book. I'm gonna, you know, and this is my this is my friend for the next couple of hours. Yeah, and then I'm gonna have, make a cup of tea and go back to it. And you know, I do that a bit. Obviously, I read a lot, but I do have days where I'm like, God, I haven't actually read a a, a chapter or something in a book for a long time, and I miss it. Yeah, but I'm just you just feel yourself being pulled in all these directions, right? Yeah, I think as a writer, as a writer who's always convinced that the answer is outside herself, um, you know, I'm always wanting to look at someone else's book thinking that it will give me the key, yeah. you know, the key to unturn the lock that <laughs> suddenly opens the chamber of gold or, you know, treasures unmeasurable or, and, and sometimes I, I, I think really the, the key once you're in your 40s probably isn't outside yourself so much as within but then, I mean, that's also, you know, I've been toying in my mind with writing the Tao of Megan, like the Tao of Pooh, except I've probably got less to say. You know, there's a whole endemic of of wellness and looking in, too, that, mm. uh, that I have a mixed relationship as well with. And some of, some of my earlier um, quibble with self-help, comes out in this like I talk about it in my essay sorry mother and in different things and really there's a little piece in here what I got for my 21st and one of the things I get is my mum gives me a list of everything she learned and I realized when I went back through this essay collection oh my god that's actually the template in a way for this it's very understated in the book because I of course I've lost it I don't have it anymore but that's amazing for a bunch of reasons that that little piece because the two different gifts from the two parents that yeah. have that have been in your life in very different ways. Yeah, yeah. And the one that you are instantly more grateful for because it's the obvious, you know, a cash gift yeah, on your twenty first. And it's a wonderful. Who doesn't exactly? Yeah. But who doesn't want and, and it, I got that, and a lot of people I know got that or something yeah. similar. You just get a lump sum of some money that when you're twenty one and you go out and you blow yeah, most you of blow it, if it. not all of it, and. That's great, but yeah, it's it's amazing that because uh, you know, do you you know, do you really think about how great that money was now? No, because it's been and gone. Yeah, well, yeah. I feel sad because that was yeah. a great gift from Dad, and then it's That's pitted right. against a list That's of right. things that at the time I found offensive and annoying from a woman who I had little respect for, my mother at the time. Yes. For uh, you know, because I'm in that time of life where you're keeling away from your parents. You're being your own place. person, yeah, that's um, right, yeah. And yes, I, I go out like like Jack with his magic beans and mm. throw the $1,000 into the ether. Um, and now, all these years later, I'm like, God, if only I kept that list of things my mother had learned. But I only can remember one of them, which is if you're doing something and it's not working, try something else. And I think really, in a way, that is a template for things I learned at school and I have a lot of lists in the book oh and this is a gem that came to me recently the first person to publish my creative writing was Justin Patton when he worked at Landfall wow and he published a poem of mine about (laughs) Daryl Hannah as a mermaid (laughs) and um, he published a couple of other little things as well and he wrote me a reference to get into my MA which I did in England Mm. and he said that my writing was deliberately blunt and list-like Fantastic. Um, and I'm like, God, still to this day, <laughs> that is probably some of the most penetrating analysis yeah. of what I'm doing that's and ever happened. <laughs> I love I love that book he wrote, you know, that series, that How to Look yeah. at, his one, the How to Look at a Painting. Yes, I thought, great. For, you know, for a, 
you know, I've got no art training uh, as either a practitioner or like art history or anything like that. I'm just someone who does like art in the very general mm. vein. And I learnt a lot from that book. I thought that was really well explained on a really simple, thoughtful level. He's a wonderful yeah. art writer yeah. and I really enjoyed interviewing him about a year ago on his book on Colin McCann yeah. and um, I interviewed him for the New Zealand Festival I think and loads of people wanted to talk to him afterwards, you know. Yeah. He's a he's a star, Justin. But I thought one thing that gets overlooked is the title essay. Mm. Probably, mm. probably simply for the reason it's probably not the best essay in the book but Things I Learned at Art School was a title I came up with when I was at the spin-off really it was my title mm. but I was giving it shopping it out to other people and always asking these famous artists what they'd learned at art school as well as a range of other things because I'm very interested in the creative impulse and its origins but I realized it was my title and I needed to own it and so in time I've co-opted it for my own book mm. and thought about what did I learn at art school and so I just thought I could end by mm. saying the first one which uh, is title are important well they are to me this one is optimistic because it assumes I learned something anything at all and at art school of all places where I'm quite sure I went to learn nothing and got close when I think back to art school and what it means the videotape starts to scrunch in the machine and I open the player and have to carefully unravel the miler that's the name of the plastic videotapes are composed of. Then I'm back in the edit suite late at night, accompanied only by the hiss and swirl of warm coke, and I'm sure of only one thing. Two, every sentence I write is earning interest, dot, 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 on my student loan. I was very pleased with myself for getting the word interesting, which yeah. is a banned creative writing word. Yeah, yeah. You're not allowed to use the word interesting <laughs> yeah, in your yeah. sentence. Yeah, um, the book, the book is everywhere. Like I've seen it in lots of shops. Um, I mean, it, we're we're still in restricted times, of course. But your book is in places like, or I say places like your book is in places like Whitcalls, which is where a very general book reader goes. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But as well as being in, you know, the you know, good books and Unity and yeah. all of those places that you would expect would want yeah. a book like this. So. I mean, it's early days, but I hope you get some good sales from it and some good exposure. The reviews have mostly been positive that I've seen. Have, have you had any clunkers? Um, I don't think there have been clunkers as such. As a as a reviewer myself, I'm mm. aware of the perils of reviewing mm. and that reviewers are generally doing their best to speak their truth. However, I've also come to learn that reviews are a playground for backhanded compliments. Yes. Um, <laughs> And 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 to be in a place to damn with faint praise, um, you know we're all full of uh, full of shadows, you know, mm. and uh, reviewers and artists alike, and that's what that essay speaks volumes about. That mm. essay that everyone's mm. reading again on the bad yes. art front. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So sure, I mean, I read reviews. Hey, that was and, a nice callback. <laughs> and I don't always. Um, I don't. I don't always uh, agree with them, yeah. but uh, but I also I also get jolts and recognitions from them as I do from the people who approach me having read stuff. Yeah, like yeah. someone got in touch with me, going, "Oh my God, I'm sending my friend 
things from the essay um, women who watched a room with a view too much <laughs> which is a joke on women who love too much yeah. a self-help title which I just saw in a bin by that um, op oh, shop down know. the end of your yeah. street um, the other day I was almost tempted to buy it <laughs> so things like that are lovely but at this point I'm prepared to take the rough with the smooth yeah I just feel like it's, it is interesting talking to people who are on both sides of the <laughs> fence you know I got a review for my book just the other day in Landfall and all I could think was fuck I got re-, I mean it was pretty good too but, yeah. but I, I didn't give a shit like they, they could have slayed it and it's yeah. still like shit I got a review in Landfall that's really good I didn't expect that yeah. But it was also a pretty positive, encouraging review. Yeah. And it was nice and the person had you know, the person had read the book and and thought about it. Yeah. And that's really all that I require. Like that's all I try to do when I write a review of a book is finish the book and have some thoughts about it. Most know? reviewers are being as honest as they can mm. with the material and the constraints they have to that's hand right. at that time. Yet, as we also talked about off air before this, mm. it doesn't mean all sorts of other nebulous shadows are at play in the reviewing totally world right. as they are in 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 writing itself. Mm. At this point, I'm just mainly glad to have somehow crossed the gap and be doing doing writing, even if I'm going to be slated for it. Mm. I'm just mainly glad to be getting that stuff out and that's not that I don't value being a reviewer I do but mainly at the moment I'm glad that I've crossed over and I'm doing the work that I need and want to be doing mm. yeah for better a... or for worse for richer or <laughs> for poorer well we know it's probably going to be for, for poorer but that seems like a pretty good place to finish yeah, yeah hey no, a nice chat thanks thanks, thanks.